you know, I think there's so many conditions that um, through genetic testing, you know, we would be able to um, find them early enough. And, you know, I see these new breakthroughs all the time, um, and new treatments available for um, various rare disorders. So um, I'm very excited about the potential um, to utilize this technology. Um, I'm excited about all the different um, groups that are studying this. And, um, you know, I think, as we say, you know, newborn screening does save lives. And hopefully through um, advances in this area, we'll be able to save the lives of more children. Today on the Newborn Screening Spotlight podcast, we're thrilled to have Dr. Cindy Powell join us to share her vision of genomic sequencing in newborns and her experience as a past chair of the U.S. Federal Advisory Committee on Heterable Disorders in Newborns and Children. Dr. Powell is a professor of pediatrics and genetics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine, where she sees patients, teachers, students, residents, and fellows, and participate in research. She's a board-certified clinical geneticist, cytogeneticist, pediatrician, and genetic counselor. She completed her pediatric residency at the Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and Medical Genetic Fellowship at the Children's National Medical Center and the National Institution of Health, NIH. She's the program director of the UNC Hospital Medical Genetics and Genomics Residency Program. She is the immediate past chair of the U.S. Federal Advisory Committee on Heritable Disorders in Newborns and Children and a member of the Board of Directors of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. She is the past president of the Association of Professors of Human and Medical Genetics and the American Board of Medical Genetics and Genomics. She serves on the North Carolina Newborn Screening Advisory Committee and the North Carolina Genetics and Genomics Advisory Committee. Her research interests include newborn screening, genomics, birth defects, and genetic syndromes. She led the North Carolina Newborn Exome Sequencing for Universal Sequencing, known as NC-NEXUS, project, a five-year project funded by NIH investigating the utility of next-generation sequencing in newborns. She is the UNC Site Principal Investigator for the Early Check Project, a voluntary newborn screening research project in North Carolina that offers parents the opportunity to have their infants screened for conditions that are not yet part of standard public health newborn screening. She currently serves on the MBSTRN Steering Committee and has contributed to the development of tools and resources for newborn screening research. Dr. Powell wears many hats in her different roles in medical genetics and newborn screening. You will be inspired by her story of dedicated commitment in improving the lives of children. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan, 
And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MBSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Dr. Cindy Powell, we're so delighted that you're here to join us on our podcast. You are a professor of pediatrics and genetics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine, where you see patients, teach students, residents, and fellows, and participate in research. You are a board-certified clinical geneticist, cytogeneticist, pediatrician, and genetic counselor. You led the North Carolina Newborn Exome Sequencing for Universal Screening Project, a five-year project funded by NIH investigating the utility of next-generation sequencing in newborn. Can you tell our listeners more about this important project and explain how you got involved with newborn screening research? Yes. Um, well, thank you, Ki and Amy, for asking me to join you today. Um, yes, the NC Nexus project was one of the NIH-funded NSITE projects that um, asked investigators to uh, examine the potential utility of next-generation sequencing in newborns. And we were one of four sites funded. Um, I initially became interested in the idea of the possibility of screening for additional conditions um, besides those that were sort of traditionally looked for in newborns um, through a um, collaboration with Dr. Don Bailey, uh, who is a, a scientist, a researcher, uh, who used to be at UNC and then retired from UNC and moved over to RTI. And the first project we collaborated on was a small study at um, the University of North Carolina Hospitals that offered screening for Fragile X syndrome. Uh, Don had had a long uh, record of uh, research into Fragile X syndrome as did a number of other people at UNC. Um, so we thought that would be an interesting uh, idea to see how families thought about the possibility for screening for a condition for which there was no treatment in the traditional sense in terms of a medication that one could use. However, early recognition uh, of Fragile X is certainly important to allow children with full mutation Fragile X syndrome to get into early uh, 
early early intervention programs. So where they would get, you know, therapy services, whether it be physical, occupational therapy, speech therapy. So we started with that idea. Um, and then uh, we collaborated with the Insight Project, NC Nexus, and looked at the possibility of utilizing next generation sequencing. And we used holexome sequencing to screen for over 400 conditions um, in children whose parents signed up to participate in that research project. So things really evolved from there in terms of um, you know, continuing our work in uh, looking at new possibilities for uh, newborn screening. So one of the things that they always say about newborn screening is that newborn screening saves lives. And as part of the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act in the mid-2000s, they created a federal advisory committee called the Advisory Committee on Heritable Disorders in Newborns and Children. This important committee, some of their jobs are to advise the secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services on the most appropriate application of universal newborn screening tests, technologies, policy, guidelines, and standards. In fact, the committee recommends which conditions or diseases could be part of nationwide screening that make up a panel called the Recommended Uniform Screening Panel or RUSP. I was a member of the advisory committee during its first five years. Um, so it was my first introduction as a medical geneticist into the process of newborn screening. And I was also a parent of a son with severe combined immune deficiency that was eventually added to nationwide screening. So I sort of had multiple hats when I sat on the committee. And Dr. Paul, we know that you wear many hats, both as a clinician, a researcher, an advocate, and being an important part of the medical genetics and genomics community. So thinking about your time on the committee where you chaired it, can you share advice to our listeners and recommendations to many of the parents, families, and individuals that live with the diseases that are part of newborn screening or could newborn screening that may be listening to this podcast on how they can get involved to advocate for their diseases and work alongside this important advisory committee? Yes. Um, so as you know, as conditions um, are nominated uh, by uh, often parent uh, support groups, um, medical experts in the area of research and or treatment of the condition. Um, those groups put together a, a nomination package that's submitted to the committee, which is run by HRSA. And um, the, the committee does a very thorough review of each nomination package. There's what's called the nomination and prioritization uh, submit committee or work group that is um, after HRSA has an opportunity to first, you know, look the nomination package over. It get, then goes to the NNP work group, which does um, a, a review 
of the nomination, uh, looks at, you know, the screening test that's available. Um, is it accurate? Um, what's the sensitivity and specificity of that, um, uh, you know, newborn screen that's uh, being you know, utilized uh, to detect infants early on with that condition. And then they also look at things such as the, um, the treatments that are available and how effective are the treatments. And then um, the, if the nomination and prioritization work group feels that this uh, condition is worth uh, putting before the full committee, they uh, give a presentation to the full committee at one of the meetings, and then the committee votes on whether or not to move that forward uh, for a full evidence-based review, which is a much more in-depth examination of all those components uh, to consider should this condition be added to the recommended uniform screening panel. That in-depth review is done over a nine-month period. So the whole process is quite lengthy. And at the end of that time, the committee then votes on whether or not to recommend to the Secretary of Health and Human Services um, to be included in, in the RUSP. Um, the, the committee members look at the net benefit from newborn screening. And one of the difficult things is for rare disorders and most all of the conditions that come before the committee are very rare disorders. And you know, the, the need for data, published data uh, regarding you know, the screening test, the um, benefits of treatment, uh, the potential harms of treatment, and it, looks at the total net benefit. Is there net benefit or is there not net benefit um, for offering screening for this condition? And, you know, thinking about how, um, how much information the committee really needs, I think that's one important thing for groups to keep aware of is that the more data, the better. And, you know, it's realized certainly that it's hard to collect data on rare disorders. Um, and oftentimes, you know, there may be one or more states in the country that have started newborn screening either as a pilot or have added it to their own state newborn screening panels um, that provide a lot of that data. And, you know, there are some states, um, such as New York State, for example, that um, has often been a leader in terms of um, putting maybe a new condition on their state panel, even when it's not on the rust. And that's provide, that's help, helps provide extremely valuable information about those health outcomes for those children who are detected pre-symptomatically and then are able to be treated early. And, you know, it's difficult to have states do that. Um, you know, sometimes a condition might be screened for in another country, for example, but more often uh, we're left with um, having data on a sibling uh, of an, a, an affected child who, you know, was 
post-symptomatically identified and then, you know, had another sibling where, you know, either the testing was done during the pregnancy to see if that fetus was affected with the same condition or not, or was tested immediately after birth and then started uh, in early treatment. And so, you know, that's, those are often very limited cases out there. And so, you know, for the committee and the evidence-based review group to, um, you know, try to collect all that data is a real challenge. And so the more data that's possible, either collected by, you know, a family support group for that rare disorder or from a perhaps pharmaceutical company that's, you know, has uh, produced a, a therapeutic drug to treat the condition. Um, but, you know, that that's extremely helpful and important um, to help increase the chances that a condition will be approved um, by the committee. I can think of my time on the committee, and certainly one of the things that struck me was, you know, just the involvement of parents, families, and even individuals living with the diseases themselves and coming before the committee and presenting evidence and family stories and sometimes even being um, accompanied by their children or family members who are affected by the diseases. And it was also struck by the large number of medical organizations that are um, serve um, adjunctly to the committee um, and provide information and helpful evidence, as well as the state newborn screening programs and researchers who sort of helped advance understanding of screening technologies and even novel treatments to care for these children um, as they go through the lifespan. I'm sure, Dr. Powell, in your time on the committee that you met many family members and um, some of your colleagues who were so invested in newborn screening. Can you share um, some stories with our audience that sort of have inspired you to continue to be involved in newborn screening research? Yes. Well, you know, certainly the committee wants to make sure that everyone um, can have their voice heard. Um, before the committee. So I think, you know, those who do offer either written or um, verbal comments to the committee, it's it's very, you know, helpful, very informative. Um, of course, you know, I, I work with families every day. I see children every day where the parents really amaze me in terms of how they're, you know, dealing with um, caring for a very medically com complex child. And it's wonderful if we can offer a treatment for that child. I guess, you know, um, when the committee was hearing about um, spinal muscular atrophy and deciding whether that should be recommended to the secretary for inclusion in the RUSP, you know, there were a number of families who came in with their stories. Um, you know, there was one child who um, came in, a young child who had been treated, you know, fairly early, um, was certainly doing much better than she would have without the new treatment. Um, but, you know, that I think made an impact on the, on the members of the committee, along with the data that at that time, you know, that hadn't been that many years since the um, 
therapeutic uh, treatment became possible, but at least, you know, the data was very good that it, it looked extremely promising that um, the overall net benefit was positive for early diagnosis and early treatment. And so I think, you know, and, and certainly, thankfully, spinal muscular atrophy was added to the RUSP and We've been screening in North Carolina for the last um, couple of years, and it's been very successful. And, um, you know, I've seen children who otherwise would have either passed away already or been, um, you know, uh, tied up to a, a ventilator in order to breathe and um, unable to, to move their limbs um, who are now, you know, running around like, you know, a, a normal, healthy three-year-old. Um, and you'd never know that they had this uh, very serious condition because they were detected through newborn screening and um, benefited from early treatment. Um, so, you know, that's one instance. The other I was thinking about is um, we had a presentation by uh, family members um, about uh, homocystinuria, which, you know, has been on the rust for quite a long time now, but I hadn't realized until I heard their presentation that 50% or up to 50% of cases of homocystinuria are not detected through current newborn screening technology. And that was something that I hadn't appreciated before. So I think, you know, the expertise from um, many of these uh, parent, you know, support groups um, can really be informative to the committee. And um, I know that the CDC has been working on improving the um, ability of uh, screening for homocystinuria. And hopefully um, that's something that, uh, you know, will become available in newborn screening labs um, throughout the United States. Thank you so much, Dr. Powell, for sharing those stories. You also serve on the state North Carolina Newborn Screening Advisory Committee. Can you tell our listeners the difference between the state and federal advisory committee on newborn screening conditions? For example, if a condition is not added on the RUS, how can a condition become added to the state screening panel? You know, we're talking about the Federal Advisory Committee and the RUSP and that um, this is, you know, it's important The R is recommended uniform screening panel. So it's not a mandate that all states screen for every condition that's on the RUSP. Um, many do. Uh, many states have uh, inclusion legislation now that, uh, you know, by law, they have to begin screening for a condition that's on the RUSP within a certain period of time. Um, I think in North Carolina, it's within three years. Um, and so, you know, it's while the federal panel provides guidance and also can provide um, these very in-depth evidence-based reviews to look at whether a condition um, should be on the RUSP. It's up to each state to decide whether or not they want to include that condition on their state panel. Um, and being on the state advisory committee, 
Um, I think, you know, it's more being a ground troop versus sort of being a general who's not as, you know, intimately involved with things. Um, on the state level, you know, we meet, um, we hear from those at our North Carolina State Public Health Laboratory, um, specifically the newborn screening laboratory. Um, we hear from the follow-up team. Uh, we hear from um, other, you know, people that are involved in the whole newborn screening uh, system. And it's it's a very large system. It's not just the, the lab, but um, doing the follow-up, um, you know, uh, both short and long-term follow-up. Uh, hearing from families, there's usually a patient advocate um, or parent of a patient, you know, who's been identified through newborn screening with the condition to hear their voice, um, to hear from, you know, administrators, lawyers, people like that, that all make up this important system. So, um, you know, it, it is, um, it's, you know, helpful to still have a, sort of a rigorous discussion about conditions and adding conditions. I think having the legislation now in our state, and there's a number of other states around the country that have similar laws, um, it's made it somewhat easier. Um, also helped increase the funding so that we can add new conditions, um, you know, without sort of bankrupting the system. So um, that, I think, you know, has been a, a methodology that's worked very well. Now, you asked about some states that have conditions on their panels that um, for conditions that, that aren't on the RUSP. And I think I, I see two sides of that. One I mentioned at the beginning where, you know, those states can provide a lot of important data about, you know, what are the results, what are the outcomes from newborn screening for, you know, X conditions. So for example, New York um, initiated X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy newborn screening, which provided a great deal of information that ultimately helped lead to that being included on the RUSP. Um, on the other hand, you know, New York has also been screening for Crab A disease for a number of years, um, along with several other states around the country. And while that did provide some information, there was still, I think, limited data about the outcomes of patients. And as people know, and I'd, I was off the committee by the time that was voted on, but Crab A was not um, voted to be included or to go to the secretary uh, for um, inclusion in the RUSP. Um, and so I, I think, you know, despite that now, there are efforts going on to have individual states add crab A disease to their own state newborn screening panels, which may or may not be the best thing. I mean, while it can help provide you know, additional information and help identify children at an early age who hopefully will benefit from very early uh, stem cell transplants. Um, and there's some promising gene therapy. Uh, there are clinical trials going on for that. So hopefully you know, treatment options will improve and outcomes will um, continue to improve. Um, but I think, you know, it, um, there, 
there are experts in conditions. I mean, every state um, has, you know, pediatricians and most states have subspecialists, um, whether they're geneticists, uh, biochemical geneticists and others um, who really have more expertise in rare diseases than um, state representatives may have. Uh, but I know in some states, uh, parent support groups have gone through a state legislator um, who, you know, through their power has been able to get a condition added to a state newborn screening panel. And while um, state representatives may think that they know more than um, healthcare providers do about patient care, personally, I don't feel that that's the case. Um, you know, uh, one or two may be physicians, but most are not. And, um, you know, just being swayed by, you know, one of their, um, you know, one of the people maybe in their community um, or their district or their state, you know, with a voice that often, you know, yes, it's it's extremely you know, emotional to see an untreated child with a rare disease um, and, you know, getting a sympathetic vote for that, you know, may not necessarily be best for the, the total system. Dr. Paula, in addition to serving on all of these committees that help guide the policy for newborn screening, you've been very involved in some research projects that are sort of looking to the future. Um, one of those features is next generation sequencing, which some researchers, advocates, and clinicians think has the potential to significantly improve newborn screening programs in the United States and around the world. What do you think genomic sequencing can offer to universal newborn screening programs that might be currently missing? And what do you think the advantages and limitations are that parents and families should begin to think about as they hear about sequencing of newborns? Well, newborn screening has often moved forward through the development of new technologies. Um, for example, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, it was realized that tandem mass spectroscopy could be utilized to detect inborn errors of metabolism in uh, patients, and that this was something that could be um, done on a high throughput basis where you could, you know, look at very many, many samples, you know, in a, in a single day, so potentially to screen newborns. And really, it was, you know, through de development of that technology, um, and I'll, you know, say, because North Carolina was um, one of the first states to do that, both on a pilot basis and then to implement it as part of our state newborn screening, um, was extremely beneficial and could, you know, uh, increase the number of conditions that we could test for that still, you know, were... Um, following the Wilson and Youngner criteria in terms of, you know, not being recognizable at birth, otherwise being a serious condition and having successful treatment. For example, MCAT, medium chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency, where, 
you know, prior to newborn screening, a third of patients with that would die um, often in the first uh, year or two of life. A third would be left with severe brain damage and a third would, would survive, but like a 66% um, uh, morbidity and mortality from that condition. And now we detect those babies uh, shortly after birth. We make sure they're fed um, often uh, because it's when babies are fasting that they uh, can't produce enough glucose and they um, you know, may, may die as a result of that. So um, extremely important contributions through the technology that became available. So I see next generation sequencing as the next step in that technology. Um, because there are many very serious conditions out there for which there's not a biochemical marker or any kind of biomarker that we can look at or screen for. But if the genetic cause of that condition is known, um, we are, should be able in most cases to find it through molecular techniques. And a high throughput way is through next generation sequencing, um, either whole exome or more commonly now being utilized for the pilot studies or research trials looking at um, this is whole genome sequencing. Um, for example, a condition like retinoblastoma, um, there are children born with a gene mutation for retinoblastoma, where either at the time of birth or very shortly after birth, they develop tumors in the retina of the eye that if not detected and treated at the earliest stages, they will lose their vision. Um, and so this potentially is a condition that, you know, perhaps we should screen for, offer screening for in newborns. And there are other um, early childhood cancer conditions that we, not, we may not be able to prevent the cancer, but detecting it very early, we can have much better outcomes through treatment. Um, and so I think that, you know, utilizing uh, next generation sequencing um, has the potential to be able to uh, detect children with very serious conditions early on. And, um, you know, but we also need the data um, to look at how this can be done in a a public health way, in a safe way, in a way that's not going to overburden our already overburdened public health system. Um, so we really need these research projects. And, you know, uh, several have already been started or in the works. Um, we have one that we're getting ready to begin later this summer that will expand on um, our project that's called Early Check in North Carolina. And we... Um, initially uh, started with screening for fragile X syndrome. Um, and we've done other pilots over the years um, since 2018, um, including uh, spinal muscular atrophy. We did a pilot um, in North Carolina for that prior to it being added to our state uh, screening panel. Um, and uh, we've just finished or finishing up of screening for um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy and other uh, muscle uh, genetic muscular disorders. 
Um, so it's been very successful um, in our state. Uh, every parent who gives birth to a child within North Carolina uh, is able to sign up um, online on their phone or, or uh, tablet to sign up. Um, and that same blood that's used for standard public health newborn screening of their baby, um, if they so choose and consent, uh, can be utilized for uh, early check. And the new um, project, new early check, uh, we call it an early check 2.0, um, will actually be utilizing a whole genome backbone, but screening for about 170 conditions that our expert group of uh, clinicians, um, genetic counselors, dietitians, um, and others that have um, looked very carefully at each condition to see whether it is um, worthy of being on uh, our newborn screening panel. And so parents will be able to have their child screen for, as I said, about 170 conditions for which there is um, treatment available either through uh, traditional, you know, enzyme treatment or um, other methods of treatment or um, early, um, early surveillance, you know, to, to pick up those, um, you know, whether it's an eye tumor or um, a thyroid cancer um, or, or, you know, biochemical abnormality. Um, so we will be starting that, um, as I said, later this summer, and we'll also offer, um, if parents desire, if they sign up for this, they can have their child, um, uh, we will analyze a second group of conditions for which there's, there's not um, actionability at this point, but there's very promising treatments available, um, you know, through clinical trials that are ongoing. And so if a child were to screen positive for one of those conditions, in addition, I mean, everybody gets um, the genetic result verified and confirmed through traditional testing through a cheek swab. But if they sign up for panel two um, and the child screens positive and it's confirmed, they would be directed to available clinical trials, um, such as, for example, San Filippo syndrome um, or other types of mucopolysaccharidosis for which there's not yet any treatment available um, or you know, a number of other conditions. And then the third panel is quite unique in our project, and it's actually to utilize a polygenic risk score. So a number of single nucleotide um, polymorphisms in certain genes uh, can be different in a subset of the population. And um, putting all these together and looking at data from patients who are known to have that condition, uh, one can come up with an increased um, risk for a certain percentage of patients to have a condition. And in this case, what we're going to be screening for is um, to look for those babies who are at either a, a low, moderate, or increased risk 
uh, for developing type 1 diabetes. And when um, a child is known to be in a high-risk category, they would then have uh, testing for um, uh, autoantibodies that uh, are uh, affect the pancreas and are an early sign. So a stage one diabetes, type one diabetes has three different stages. And so we would um, be uh, trying to detect those children who have an early stage one form of diabetes where they don't have any problems with glucose yet, um, but that we know that then once they develop two or more of these autoantibodies, they're at a much increased risk for then developing diabetes. Um, and so the really purpose in infants to do this is to prevent uh, the onset of diabetes where many children present with what's called diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA, which can be fatal if not um, properly and rapidly treated. Um, while there are drugs, new drug, a new drug that's available um, that delays the onset of type 1 diabetes, that's only been approved for older children at this point and not young children. So hopefully in the future, we'll not only be able to detect it early, but there'll be a drug that will either um, postpone the onset of diabetes or will perhaps pre prevent it forever. Uh, and that's the long-term hope. So anyway, that's um, what we're planning to do for the early check project. Um, so we're a little bit different uh, compared to some of the other projects around the country and around the world that are also looking at the um, benefit of uh, next generation sequencing, um, but are mostly concentrating on the rare uh, monogenic conditions. Dr. Powell, thank you so much for sharing the updates to the Early Check Project in North Carolina and your perspective on the next generation sequencing. Dr. Powell, your team had published a paper titled Genomic Sequencing for Newborn Screening, the Results of the NC Nexus Project. Your team showed the clinical application of genomic sequencing technology, how it can offer great opportunities in both diagnostic testing and screening. Can you share with our listeners the major findings from this publication and future initiatives? Yes, so um, that was our uh, NSITE project, um, NC Nexus. And we had um, children who participated in that from different groups. One group, uh, the parents were recruited prior to the infant's birth. And these were what we called our healthy cohort. Um, that cohort um, presumably had no problems. Um, the parents would enroll prenatally, and then after the baby was born, I would get a cheek swab, and we um, did our next generation sequencing utilizing uh, the panel um, of over 400 conditions that we would screen for. And um, then we had another cohort of participants who were children who had been uh, diagnosed with a condition through standard uh, newborn screening. And these included children with um, PKU, phenylketonuria, um, with hearing loss, and with um, a few other metabolic conditions. 
So for the, um, the patients with metabolic conditions, um, we were able to identify a genetic cause, uh, find the you know, genetic variance in about 88% of cases. So not 100%. So that told us that um, you know, with current ability to sequence, to detect um, variants in genes, and to be able to interpret those variants, um, that that was not as um, sensitive as traditional uh, tandem mass spectroscopy newborn screening. Um, but it could provide, provide information such as for maybe a second tier test, uh, perhaps to cut down on the number of um, false positive newborn screens by utilizing um, a secondary genetic test. Um, for the healthy cohort, we did find um, a few patients with unexpected uh, conditions, and we also found a few unexpected conditions um, in our patients with known uh, metabolic disorders. And um, so those included a child with a mild form of hemophilia, where, um, you know, potentially if they had surgery, you know, it, it could cause some uh, increased uh, bleeding problems during surgery. So again, important information for the family and that patient to know about um, going forward. Um, and uh, we actually had one patient with um, known uh, PKU who um, also had a, a pathogenic variant in another metabolic disorder um, that could cause potential problems um, somewhat in females, but more significantly potentially in a male child because that was, it's, it's an excellent condition. So, um, you know, we showed that there would be um, benefit in detecting some other serious conditions uh, by utilizing um, a, a genomic um, screen in, in patients. So I think, you know, that, that was one, one of the first studies that really looked at that in a healthy population. Um, the group in Boston also had a subset of their patients in their Insight project who were, you know, healthy, I believe, recruited after birth. Um, but uh, depending on the number of uh, gene condition pairs that were screened for, um, I think anywhere from, you know, three to six percent or so of patients were found to have um, pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants in genes that were associated with highly actionable um, conditions. And um, so, you know, again, this was a very important project. Um, and the early check project will, um, you know, utilize some of the information that we collected um, during the Ensite project to be able to expand and um, do this in a, a larger number of patients. 
And I think, you know, it's very exciting that the different can, the different projects that are going on around the world will all be able to collect data. Um, and it's really, you know, data that we need um, to have collected and to follow up these patients long term because, you know, um, grants, uh, funding from, you know, various groups may be for only a limited period of time. And it's only going to be if we can follow these um, identified patients long term that we're really going to, you know, um, get the most information, uh, the most bang for our buck, so to speak, um, you know, uh, by, by following them long term and seeing, you know, what are the outcomes. For a lot of these rare disorders, you know, we're used to doing genomic sequencing in, in critically ill newborns or, you know, children with unknown neurodevelopmental disorders um, that helps the interpretation um, greatly. But screening a healthy population, um, if you find something, you really don't know what will be the chance of that child ever developing the condition. That's a concept called penetrance. And we really don't know for many of these rare conditions what the penetrance is. And so it's only with long-term follow-up that we're going to be able to um, figure out what the penetrance is. Um, you know, is it high enough that this condition should even be considered for um, genomic newborn screening or not? Um, and, you know, collecting all this data from these various groups around the world um, is really gonna be critical. Um, in addition, we need to find out what the impact is long-term on families who participate in these projects. Um, is this something that is going to have a benefit long-term or are we you know, producing what some have called like patients in waiting where the, um, not knowing for sure, you know, is their child ever going to develop this condition or not? Um, is that putting too much stress, undue stress on families? So, you know, certainly having these as research projects where families will be able to consent to participate or not is what's needed um, prior to ever thinking about having this as part of public health newborn screening. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul, for sharing your important work. Um, so one of the things we know from your bio and your history is that you were trained as a pediatrician. Um, so we would love to have you talk a little bit about whether or not you were involved in training the next generation of pediatricians and what you might tell them about newborn screening and newborn screening research. Yes, well, I, I still work some with our pediatric residents um, at uh, UNC, not as much as I used to, but we do have some who rotate through our division um, for uh, sometimes one or two weeks, sometimes a month. Um, so at least they have an opportunity um, to see what, um, what it's like in uh, medical genetics. Um, I'm you know, involved in um, training uh, medical geneticists uh, through our residency, subspecialty residency program in medical genetics and genomics at UNC. Um, and I'm sure, as you know, there's a great um, national shortage of medical geneticists. 
And that's something that, you know, many of us are are working on, you know, trying to figure out a way to get more people interested in going into the field. Um, those of us in the field of medical genetics think that it's fascinating um, and we don't understand why more people don't want to go into it. But, um, you know, it's perhaps not one of the most lucrative fields to be in in medicine, um, unlike, you know, some specialties where they're they might do a lot of procedures and things and, and have higher salaries. But, you know, the, the excitement of medical genetics is uh, something that, you know, um, I think attracts uh, most of us who end up going into the field. You know, it's always something new. Um, you can do so many things from participating in, you know, treating patients to um, work on clinical trials for patients to do basic research um, to teach. And, um, you know, it's, it's very fulfilling. So, um, you know, I, I certainly enjoy my role in education, um, as well as patient care and, and participating in research, um, and uh, hope to, you know, pass on my enthusiasm to, to the next generation of, um, of physicians. And I also, uh, teach a bit in our um, genetic counseling training program at uh, University of North Carolina in Greensboro, um, because there's also a shortage of genetic counselors. Um, and so we we need to get more and more people to go into that um, and get them interested as early as possible. I think, you know, at the high school and college levels is where we really need to make sure, you know, people are um, aware of uh, clinical genetics, medical genetics, you know, utilizing our knowledge of basic genetics and genetic principles to diagnose and treat patients. And, um, you know, more and more patients are now able to be treated as we devise new things such as um, new uh, gene therapy uh, and other types of uh, therapeutics that are, that are coming online. Dr. Powell, you are currently a member on the Stern Committee of MBS Trend. Can you tell us how MBRCN has impacted your work and where MBRCN can help further the field of newborn screening research? Yes, so um, I became more involved in some of the work that NBSTRN was doing when we began our NSITE project. Um, and I think the you know data collection is really critical. Um, as I said, you know, we, we don't do a very good job in, even for the common conditions that are on the RUSP, you know, like PKU, there's not a lot of long-term data that's out there. And that's something that, you know, I tried to get the Secretary's Advisory Committee to focus on uh, during the time that I was chair um, to figure out uh, how we could collect more data um, more in the, the long-term, there's you know quite a bit of data short-term, but I think the long-term data, and I know that's one thing that NBSTRN is trying to do, um, which I think you know, is, is critically important and hopefully can be expanded. Um, we also looked at interoperability of that data so that a way that more easily data could be tracked from public health laboratories to um, medical centers, 
to you know physician offices, private offices. Um, and so I think that's something that you know we still all need to you know hopefully work on in in this country um, because of our very um, uh, I don't know the word, but um, health our healthcare system that is so you know variable from one person to another. Um, you know, as opposed to a uh, more, you know, uh, standard healthcare system such as they have, you know, in Canada and the UK and other countries that do a much better role of um, tracking uh, outcomes in patients. So I think that's, you know, we really need that. And um, so for, you know, common disorders um, that are screened for in newborns, being able to collect that data is extremely important. The other thing that the NBSTRN has done a great job is to tie together um, groups that are doing pilot studies for newborn screening and, um, you know, bringing them together to discuss, you know, what are some of the problems people are having? Um, how successful is their program? You know, I think those um, monthly meetings are um, extremely helpful and important to continue. And then, um, again, thinking about the data collection, you know, all these groups that are doing these um, newborn genomic sequencing uh, pilot studies and, you know, research projects, um, <clears throat> we're going to need to start collecting data on these other very rare conditions and um, figuring out outcomes um, in those cases. So the, the data part of it, I think, you know, is um, certainly going to continue to be extremely important and help all the groups come together where, you know, often uh, we don't always talk to each other. You know, we might, might have a child with retinoblastoma diagnosed, you know, but, um, we don't we can't compare them to others that you know they might find in a in another state or another country. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul. It's been so wonderful to share your stories and to listen to the impactful work that you've done to help advance newborn screening research. Um, I know our listeners will be really excited to hear about your history and following your new developments and all the new studies that you're undertaking. Um, so we always end our podcast with our signature question. And our signature question is, what does newborn screening research mean to you? I think, you know, it, it's very exciting. Um, I see so many children with conditions for which, you know, we, we can't do anything or it's too late to do anything by the time we identify their problem. Even if there is a treatment available, it's often too late to make a, a really big difference. You know, I think there's so many conditions that um, through genetic testing, you know, we would be able to um, find them early enough. And, you know, I see these new breakthroughs all the time. Um, and new treatments available for um, various rare disorders. So um, I'm very excited about the potential um, to utilize this technology. Um, I'm excited about all the different um, groups that are studying this. 
And, um, you know, I think, as we say, you know, newborn screening does save lives. And hopefully through um, advances in this area, we'll be able to save the lives of more children. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together, let's increase increase the impact impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.